My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. We are in the book of Romans. Uh, we will be in chapter two later on, but I am now streaming to you for this uh, recording uh, with a brand new microphone. So I am hoping <laughs> that everything gets solved with this. It's been annoying to me. I know it's been annoying to you to hear everything in the background there as I was trying to fix things on my end. I am technologically illiterate. So if there's anything that keeps happening there, we'll figure it out as best we can here on, on my end. Uh, and Josh's help as well. He's been very, in, yeah, completely in, invaluable to this to make sure that things are running smoothly as possible from a distance, which is really hard to do. So here we are. Here's where we're at. Here's where we're at, I should say. Like I said, we're going to be in Romans in the, uh, let's see, the book of Romans, chapter two, starting with verses one through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury and wrath. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Here we see and is continuing on the themes that he built up in the first chapter. And uh, for everyone listening in, like, know that they weren't really separated in the same way by chapter and verse that we have them now. It's more invention that came along to really help us out in the, I believe it's the 1600s is when things really started getting changed there. Like, there had been attempts before all this to try and make verses and stuff like that beforehand, but like, that's when it really got finalized. But Paul, continuing from where he left off, just exposes us, says, We are all guilty of sin, and are also, we judge falsely when it comes to the sins of others as compared to ourselves. Right now, Paul isn't saying that we can't judge here, but he is saying that if all we do is judge, then we miss the part of the equation where we too have been guilty of some of the things that we bring as accusations against others. If I see someone around me struggling with pride and I call them out for it while not dealing with my own pride, I am ultimately judging myself more than I'm judging them. And that's an indictment against me for failing to do my job correctly. Look, there is a way, we've said it before, just to love correct, uh, excuse me, to lovingly correct people. And we need to learn how to do it well because the church needs its members to give their all in the fight against sin. But you and I, we weaken this army we're in. 
when we judge without also dealing with our own sins. And I say we because I'm not blameless here. You know me. I've talked about what I've done before in the past, how I've hurt people, how I haven't done things as well as I should have, how I hasn't, haven't studied as well as I should have, haven't loved people as much as I should have. Everyone falls short, but there's a time and a place to judge. And if I'm judging you simply because I think I'm more righteous than you, there's an issue. Next, we also see in this that Paul brings up God is righteous to judge sin. We find throughout the Bible that he cannot abide it in his presence. Sin offends him as it is something that he is not capable of doing. Otherwise, he wouldn't be pure and holy. God despises sin, yet still offers love and the hope for repentance to to all humans out there, even though he knows not everyone will take him up on his offer for a better life. We feel a bit of this in ourselves. We all seek justice in the world. But not everyone truly understands what justice rightfully entails. It's that general idea of something needs to be done that has been put in our hearts to show that, you know, where God stands on these things. But we, as being human and flawed, screw it up. This desire for justice to be seen in the world is, like I said, it's just as inherent within us as understanding that this world was created by God. And he wants to have a relationship with us. We all inherently know those things, that there's something more out there than what we see around us, that there's something that should be done when evil deeds are done in the world. But the problem from this desire comes in that, like I said, like we are flawed and we aren't able to fully understand God and his commands, even with help gifted to us by scripture. You would think, hopefully, out of all the people in the world, Christians would be the ones most equipped to deal with this, but we're just as flawed as everyone else. Sure, if we're doing our jobs, We have a better understanding of all those matters, but that's not always enough. Look, part of a Christian's life is bringing God's justice into the world, but the Christian should always be wary of choosing to enforce their will on the world rather than God's. We also see here that God will reward righteousness and condemn evil in the hearts of those who follow him and those who reject him. We do not do what we do because of the rewards God will give us but because our hearts are set on the things that bring honor and glory to him. It is far better for us to do this than seek after our own interests, because we often get blinded by pride and lose sight of the good that God desires us to do. And if we ever lose sight of that, we're missing the point. We can't ever allow ourselves to get there. We also see uh, near the end here of these verses, God will show no partiality to those he judges based on race, country of origin, wealth, or any other factor. All you have to do is look through the history of the world, and you're going to see a bunch of people, as soon as they start congregating in groups, saying, we're better than everyone else. I'm better because I'm Caucasian. I'm better because I'm from Africa. I'm better because I'm Japanese. Like it, It's going to happen because people try to make themselves better than what they actually are. I mean, it happens with religions, too, in ways that Christ's word gets changed forever in a terrible way to the point where people believe more in their identity as this false sense of what a Christian should be rather than the truth that God has set us all free, regardless of where we're at in this world, if we come to him and repent. And that's not good to stay in places like that. We're being led astray by the evils of this world. And the world, it needs us to be better. It needs us to see truth and not what we want to be truth. The only thing 
that ultimately God will see in the end is whether or not a man or woman came to him in repentance and asked forgiveness for the sins in their life. And that, thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus, will save them from what we all rightfully deserve. Can I get an amen? Because I know I, I know all that I've done. And sure, you could say, well, there are people way worse than what you uh, anything you've done, Christian. Yeah, sure. That's great. But I've still hurt people way more than I ever wanted to. On my worst day, the things I've said, the people I've hurt, God covers that. Not to just say, oh, well, you're off the hook and you don't have to apologize to anyone or do anything else. No, you're flawed. My son's sacrifice covered that. Now go and be like him in the world. 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The law, or lack thereof of the law, will never save someone from judgment. For the Jewish people, the law was their everything, or at least it should have been. Countless times in the history of Israel, the people rejected God's law and lived by their own standards. Even in Jesus' day, like they were following the law, but they weren't following the spirit of the law, putting, making up rules that never should have existed to show false piety, to make themselves look better than other people. It's no use to follow the law and then make up your own stuff too. Like Paul makes a point that either way, humans are guilty of falling short because even by their own standards, they were wicked and evil. We've all met someone out there who thinks that they aren't that bad and they'll get into heaven because they're good enough. No such thing exists. But I look at myself, I hold myself up to a ridiculously high set of standards that I expect from no one else, and I fail myself every single day. Anyone, anyone with a rational mind knows that they're not good by any measure that they could create. But we delude ourselves into thinking that we can be righteous, and therefore we don't need help from God or to even believe in Him at all. But this is always going to be false. No set of rules made by anyone in this world that isn't God is going to be sufficient. And I failed it every day, but I'm working on it. And that's part of the good news is that God knows we're not good enough, but he knows we're going to be working on it if we come to him. The Gentiles, as opposed to the Jewish people, didn't have the law that God gave them out of all the nations in the world, but they were still going to be judged for their evil because they had laws of their own that not a single one of them fully followed. So even when man creates laws in an attempt to do good and force people to live among one another in a good manner, we cannot be judged as righteous because we can't truly and completely follow any law that we make. So Paul's point here is that it doesn't matter that the Jewish people out of all the nations in the world receive God's law specifically to them because people made rules all the time. The Jewish people couldn't keep the laws that God gave, and we can't keep the laws that we make. 
I can't keep the standards that I hold for myself, even the smaller stuff. It's impossible because I'm human, because I screw up. And that is enough to separate me from God. Yet that good news is still that Jesus Christ came to save you and I. Should we turn to him, repent of our sins and say, yes, Lord, I want to be with you. That's what Paul is trying to make the point here saying is that that's the only standard. Now, part of these uh, verses here, too, raise a very uh, huge intellectual and theological question that is something that we definitely need to, to hit on here, right here. And that's this, this spot here. Some people get the idea that those who have never once heard the name of Jesus preach can still find him and be his. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, I've never been entirely certain where I stand on this concept. Although for the sake of giving an answer, I lean towards saying it's not possible. Now, my reasoning being in this idea is that even within these verses, Paul speaks about the fact that Gentiles who live by their own laws and thoughts fall short, and thus are under judgment they give themselves for not following the laws and ideals they made. And look, as, as fanciful and hopeful as it might be to think, man, there's someone out there even before Jesus coming on the earth, or even right now, that is on some uncontacted tribe that uh, knows nothing about the gospel, and that there's a hope that they can find him. Like, I don't know. But there are other people, too, who would point stuff in the Bible. We see in Genesis, there's this uh, priest known as Melchizedek. And from the information we are given, it doesn't seem like anyone uh, evangelized to him, anyone talked to him. Maybe he had a special meeting with God, but he seems to be someone who is worshiping God, especially when we get to other parts of the New Testament, where he is praised for his worship of God. So that tells me he's more than likely is. So how did that happen? I don't know. Maybe he realized it one day. And that's where a verse like this and the way that some people would take it come into being. I don't think so, but I also can't prove that. So I'd like you to make your own conclusion. Where do you stand on this? Obviously, and you know where I stand because I'm the one speaking, but spend some time yourself. Like, from my knowledge of God and what he does and who he is, what do I think is going to happen here? This isn't like a salvation issue. This isn't like a huge issue, like, oh, we have to go to separate churches because you think that God can save someone, you know, with me never evangelizing to him, no missionary ever came to him. Like, this is one of those things that we just don't know the answer. So come to your own conclusion here. Bring as many facts as you can to support your arguments. At the end of the day, we're not going to know while we're here. But I do bring it up because it's a natural thought process from seeing all this. I mean, even look like, um, like I'm a huge C.S. Lewis guy, if you listen to episode zero. And some of the things I've also said in Systematic Ecology. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a great part in the seventh book, The Last Battle, where we see this Kallerman soldier. This is a nation who opposes as land. It's, it's not totally on the same wavelength here, but there's enough to support this argument here. And we see when everyone is essentially in Narnian heaven, this Kalerman soldier is there because when he, as Aslan says to him, every time he worshiped the false god Tash and was doing all these good things, seeking to genuinely know who his god was and wanting to be with him, he was essentially doing it to Aslan, to, who is Jesus' god in this situation, for those of you who haven't read Narnia. And I'm so sorry if you haven't. You deserve better. So there's the idea of it's possible somewhere out there was offering, you know, sacrifices to, to Zeus or 
Kali or Pele or someone else. There's a ton of great mythologies out there to research. I love doing that so much. But it's possible out there someone could have, when genuinely they didn't know God's name, but they were giving it in such a good amount of faith, actually seeking to know what life was about, everything that they could have been saved. I don't think that's possible. I would like to think it is, especially with how big this world is, with especially, you know, Jesus's ministry really only started in 30 AD, and he died on the cross three years later. So there's a ton of history before then, where if you weren't part, I mean, uh, unless you were in contact with the Jewish people or God made contact with you, you didn't know who he was. So it would feel a lot better to me if it were possible for someone out there to come to faith in God outside of all this. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's very unlikely. So once again, draw your own conclusions here. See where you stand on this issue. Now, in the final part of this uh, set of verses, we also see that pos- uh, excuse me, Paul calls the gospel my gospel. What he isn't saying here, he's not claiming credit for the gospel or saying that he's its, its true master and orator, that people have to hear it from him. That, no, but rather, he is claiming it as a part of himself, and he wants all believers to do the same. The gospel is my gospel as much it is as it is yours if you believe. Take ownership of it and live it out. 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul furthers his earlier arguments against the Jewish people's unhealthy relationship with the law by calling them out for teaching it and not always practicing it. Failing even once was enough to be separated from God and to be judged by the law they claimed to keep. If anything in this moment, this isn't, I mean, it is about them, but it's also about him. Paul is laying a claim against himself because he was exactly the kind of person he's warning against being right here. All you have to do is go in the book of Acts and see how he was approving of Stephen being stoned to death, rounding up Christians, torturing them, persecuting them, doing evil, thinking it's in the name of God, thinking it's in the name of doing good in the world for God. He knew the law and practiced it far better than others. Yet his heart knew nothing about who God was and what he desired from Paul. Paul knew in his heart of hearts that he had never once fully kept the law, but he ignored this in favor of looking of making himself look righteous until Jesus made him realize the folly of his ways. You also see here, Paul specifically warns us against living by the moral law of God, yet pretending as if we've done nothing wrong. This way of living is precisely why people believe the church is full of hypocrites who don't believe in what they preach about. I mean, and I'll say to that, that sentence, I'll give them half credit at least. Like, the church is full of hypocrites, but a good church will be full of hypocrites actively working not to be one. 
rather than remaining a hypocrite, hypocrite like some who claim to know Christ do. Some people may be offended by what I just said there. Look, the church is full of hypocrites. You know why? Because I've been in church. That's how I know. I see a bunch of people every day who say one thing, do that thing, and then the next day they're doing something else. They're living in sin. Because I've been there. This is exactly what I've done. Yet what makes the difference is that very same person who one day praises God's name and then curses it, realizes their folly, asks forgiveness, and then strives to be better. This perception of Christians as holier-than-thou hypocrites is a cultural feeling that will never be fully destroyed. And we only have ourselves to blame, to be perfectly honest with you. But it can be fought against by Christians who truly love and desire to show people the goodness of God and how He helps save them from themselves. If you're His right now, guess what? You're in good company. You're a hypocrite among hypocrites who is doing better, who is working to be better than who they were before. You've just got to realize that when you fall, when you stumble, when I stumble, we've got to pick ourselves back up. We've got to let him do it for us and say, you're still my child. I still love you. Do better. Because when people fail to see that, when people just ignore God and pick themselves up or at least look like they do and then live a false life, it makes the church look even worse. It makes the gospel look that much worse to the world that already hates it. I use the example of hurdles, like as somebody probably can't jump over a hurdle right now, but it's so hard being in this job. And if we make it more difficult by setting up more hurdles in our path that people have to jump over to reach the gospel, we're terrible at our job and we need to be, be better. Give as few amount of obstacles to the gospel in your own life to the people around you so they can't use it as an excuse. 25 through 29. And with that, we'll be done with chapter two, a little shorter episode this week. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly, excuse me, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, some of you may not know what circumcision is, and I'll explain as briefly as possible without going into the nitty-gritty here. It was a sacred ritual act that was an outward way of showing the people around the Jewish, excuse me, around the Jews, that they were set apart from them due to their special relationship with God. And it goes all the way back to God setting Abraham apart from his Gentile neighbors. We see in Genesis 17, 9 through 14, this is from the NIV, and it states, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. 
whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So essentially, it's just a snipping off of the genitals for men as an outward sign of what was supposed to be an inward spiritual realization that I am set apart from the rest of the world. That's what circumcision is. For men only, uh, and I'm astounded I still have to say this in this day and age, this does not apply to women, and the fact that it continues to happen in the world is some, and it's an abhorrent thing that needs to stop. It actively harms women to do this as compared to the relatively uh, painless way men can go through it. Uh, I recommend you not look up and see the images that I've seen to better understand this material. It is, uh, unless that's how you learn. I mean, honestly, it helped me learn a lot better how to uh, sympathize with people how, who have been harshly treated in parts of the world that require this of their women. Like, it's awful. It's terrible. And I know there's a really, there's a growing group, especially in America right now. Uh, oh, gosh, what is the name of that uh, specific Reddit group? I cannot remember for the life of me. It's it's partially part of the men's rights stuff. And it's another group there, too. They're all up in arms about how they were circumcised as a child. They never got the right to say that, that it, it's its own issue. Look, uh, you don't have to be to be a Christian. That's the point Paul's making here. But it, it's real ridiculous to see how much people take it that seriously. Let's go back to the Jewish people real quick and why it was important to them before we go anywhere else. I've already gotten off track. Now, this process of circumcision was kept by the Jewish people when they went into Egypt escaped from Egypt, and up to the then present day in the uh, diaspora, that's the spreading out diaspora. I always get that word wrong. I should have looked it up before this. And of the Jewish people across the entire globe. And it continues to this day. It was viewed by the Jewish people as a mark of pride that they were different and better than the rest of the world as God had chosen them from all people to be made his. Yet this wasn't enough to save them. That's one of the points Paul is making here. Look, looking across Jewish history, we see plenty of evil men who despise God. We can look at Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, who, like his name says, as his wife Abigail properly says, he is a fool, a terrible man who inflicts evil on the world. And when he's dead, the world was better for it. We get to King Ahab and all the atrocities he committed, bringing in idol worship into Israel when the kingdoms were split causing death and devastation, never once truly following God, even when he saw fire come down from heaven and consume the prophets of Baal and the sacrifice, and to see the prophets of Baal also being slaughtered righteously for the, for the evil they had done to Israel, not once thinking, I need to change. And then we get to Caiaphas, high priest of Israel, who leads the call to kill Jesus Christ. Are you going to tell me that simply because of a racial uh, benefit, they get to be in heaven without once ever showing repentance, without once ever saying that, you know, God is God and I am not, and meaning that. You see the ridiculousness of notions like that? Look, being born Jewish wasn't enough to save them, and neither were they able to save themselves through circumcision. Their hearts were evil, and they focused on themselves rather than God, and for that, they were unable to be saved. It is the same thing for people out there who think 
that they're Christian simply because they grew up in a Christian home. Paul didn't have that as an example because guess what? He was only uh, a decade removed from you know, Jesus uh, being on the cross. <laughs> so he didn't really have that as an example too much. So he had to use the Jewish example, which made perfect sense to his audience who were filled of Jewish Christians and Gentiles who were learning from them. The same thing applies now. If you're out there, I mentioned this on the show before, but like, if you think you're Christian because you were born in a Christian home, you've read the Bible, and you know your grandfather, great 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 grandpappy was a pastor, you know, ten generations ago, whatever, that doesn't qualify you. The only thing that does is a relationship with Christ. Paul speaks against the idea of circumcision for the sake of doing so, as it does not save someone. There is nothing evil about male circumcision now. But every parent who has it done to their male children must also know that it is not a guarantee that their child is God's simply because of a physical act. In the same way that baptism isn't always an indicator of someone being his, I'm talking infant baptism, I'm talking an adult or a child of rational mind that can go get baptized, but that doesn't guarantee baptism. That is an outward sign of what should be a change in someone's heart. But there are plenty of people out there who got baptized because they thought they were saved or they were trying to fit in, or maybe it was even to deceive others, like and they knew. This false baptism is equal to the idea of circumcision granting safety from judgment. For the heart of man is always known by God, and he judges accordingly. A true Christian is one who, even in weakness, seeks after God and follows his moral laws to enrich the world and bring people to him. A fake one is in it for their own benefit and will run away when things get tough. Don't let physical attributes and moments define your idea of what a Christian is. For the Holy Spirit will always focus on the heart. And with that, we're done for today. So thank you for listening. Please, if you have a moment of your time, just leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Like, I mean, it doesn't have to be anything extravagant if you want to leave a review too. It's like, just tell me what you ate for that day. I'm more than fine with that. The, the content doesn't matter. The point is you gave a five-star. <laughs> so if that's what you want to do, have at it. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com as I pop my knuckles when I shouldn't be doing that on air or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further uh, solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. Contact me at lettingthemoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he has to the podcast and for calling me in the middle of recording. <laughs> so that's more work for you, buddy. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.